my best attempt to keep you all awake. I can't see my notes. a major contrast from last night to this morning. Last night we talked about pride, something I know an awful lot about. This morning, humility. I don't know anything about this subject. Proverbs 29, 23, a man's pride will bring him low, but the humble spirit will obtain honor. I don't know if you've heard the story about the minister, the Boy Scout, and the computer expert traveling on a small plane together. Seriously? A minister, this is important, a Boy Scout and a computer expert traveling on a small plane. The pilot comes back and says, folks, the plane's going down. There's only three parachutes for the four of us. I have a wife and small children. He took one and jumped out. The computer expert said, I'm the smartest man in the world. The world needs me. He took one and jumped out. So the minister turns to the Boy Scout and he says, young man, I've lived a rich and full life. You're young. Take the last parachute, jump out, I'll go down with the plane. The Boy Scout says, Reverend, relax. The smartest man in the world just picked up my backpack and jumped out of the plane. <laughs> now, I love that story not because it makes a minister look good, but because it shows the difference between pride and humility. As it were, the beauty of humility, the stars, the brilliance of the stars seen in relief against the darkness of the night sky. Notice how the story works for the contrast between motive, action, and result. The computer expert driven by self-importance, that's his motive, versus the minister driven by gratitude and humility. The computer expert is driven to grab something that doesn't belong to him out of self-importance and jumps out. The minister, driven by humility, is motivated to defer to someone else. And the computer expert, the result of what he did, completely unexpected, unintended, he falls to his death. The minister's life is saved because of his humility and deferring to one another. The story works, of course, because of its irony. And what is irony? An unexpected result from what we would normally expect. The story works for its irony. The, most, the smartest man in the world can't tell the difference between a parachute and a Boy Scout knapsack. So, humility and irony 
work, excuse me, humility and pride work for the irony that exists between them. So let me unpack that biblically for us. We see humility in terms of irony. Irony. Number one, humility is a virtue that actually proves us most genuine. It makes us most genuine can be counterfeited. Humility can be counterfeited. For example, you can be humbled without being humble. If you make a mistake and blame somebody else, you're not humble. Affliction may bring you low in countenance and posture, but your heart still remains proud. I don't deserve this. Humble people actually know what they deserve. They know what they deserve. And yet, in the gospel, we don't get what we deserve. And humble people are overwhelmed by that. Another point. <clears throat> you can evidence humble behavior without actually being humble. We read in the Old Testament that David's son Absalom placed himself at the gates of the city and dished out counsel to people and helped them with their problems as if he's this humble servant all the while plotting to overthrow his father's kingdom. Outwardly humble behavior, inwardly ravishly proud. Again, the irony. Humility, that which makes us most genuine, can be counterfeited. Another example. You can behave religiously and not be humble. Jesus spanked the most religious people of his day, the Pharisees, because they had long prayers and gave great gifts but he said their hearts are full of pride. Outwardly humble-looking behavior, motivated by pride. You can think less of yourself and not be humble. Sometimes when people think less of themselves, they say, oh, I'm a worm, I'm no good. It's actually because of a prideful desire to be better than they are. You compare yourself to someone else, find yourself lacking and actually out of self-pity, which is just another form of pride, you feel less about yourself. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Humility doesn't require you to say, oh, I'm terrible, because God doesn't make junk. Humility is simply being radically other-centered. Focused on other people rather than yourself. Okay, first point of irony. Humility, that quality that proves us most genuine, you know it when you're around it, can be counterfeited. Okay? Second point of irony. <clears throat> the things which tempt us to pride should make us humble. The things that tempt us to pride should make us humble. In other words, there's things that we think make us look valuable in the eyes of other people. They, they answer this question, why should you be impressed with me? We all have a, a list of a couple of things that answer the question, why you should be impressed with me. The reality is they should all humble us. Let me give you a couple examples. Wealth, Ezekiel 28. By your great wisdom, your trade has increased your riches and your heart is lifted up because of your riches. Wealth doesn't have to make you proud, but it tempts us to. Beauty, the prince of Tyre, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. We're warned in Proverbs 31. 
Charm is deceitful. Beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Status. The king of Babylon. We're told of him when his heart was lifted up because his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly. He was deposed of his royal throne. Things that tempt us to pride ought to make us humble. Wealth, beauty, status, intellect, success, popularity. Jesus said, beware when all men speak well of you. Or Jesus said in John 13 of the Pharisees, they love the approval of man rather than the approval of God. Things that tempt us to pride ought to make us humble. Why can't you derive your worth or your ultimate value from those things? Wealth, intellect, success, popularity. Why can't you derive your, your value from those? Let me give you a couple of reasons. Number one, you can't derive, der, der, derive worth from what's borrowed. Everything good about your life is actually on loan from God. When my son was a uh, senior in high school, he wanted to borrow a friend's uh, Boxster Porsche, one of those real fancy sports cars. And the friend was very gracious, let him take it to the prom. I can just imagine my son driving around town going, look at me. I am an expensive sports car. But that did not contribute to my son's net worth because the car didn't belong to him. Right? Nothing you have ultimately belongs to you. It is on stewardship and loan from God who gives it. Simon the Magician, we're told in Acts 9, wanted to impress people with the power of the Holy Spirit. And Peter said, your heart is full of iniquity. He wanted to use the presence of God to make people think more of him than God himself. Why can't you derive your worth from these? Second reason, they can all be taken away. They're on a string. Nebuchadnezzar's a great illustration of that. Two o'clock in the afternoon, he's king of Babylon, the most powerful man in the world. Two o'clock in the afternoon. Four o'clock, he's out in a field eating grass like cattle. It, less than a man. God said, your throne took it away in an instant from him. You can't derive your ultimate worth from the position God puts you in. Another reason, each gift God has given you is meant for you to use for God's glory. He is to receive the glory from the gift he's given you. Many of you have heard of the architect Frank Lloyd Wright, probably the most famous architect of the 20th century. He is quoted as saying this, Early in life, I had to choose between honest arrogance and hypocritical humility. I chose the former and have seen no reason to change my mind. He said there's only two options. Honest arrogance and hypocritical humility. I wish Rick Gilmartin was around to show him the third option. Honest humility. What would that look like, Mr. Wright? God, you have given me enormous gifts as an architect. You have given them to me. It is my responsibility and privilege to use them, sort of Eric Little fashion. When I design, I feel your pleasure. Right? You know that line from Chariots of Fire? When I run, I feel his pleasure. It's the sense, God has called me to do this. When I do it, I sense the pleasure of God that is always, ultimately, for God's glory. That's what we're supposed to use all of our gifts for his glory. 
What an interesting, honest, arrogant, hypocritical humility. No, Mr. Wright. How about honest humility? Another reason why you can't borrow, you can't ultimately place your worth in the things God has given you. Gifts God has given you should evoke in you bewilderment. Why do I have these gifts? Why do I have this wealth? Why do I have this wonderful family? Why do I have these good looks? See? They should evoke bewilderment in you. The humble man realizes that what God gives brings beauty to God, brings glory to God. My gifts make God look good. And the last reason we can't derive our worth from these things. They might make you look good before other people, but they can't fit you for heaven. No matter how successful, how good you are at something, it does not qualify you for the presence of God. Proverbs warns, Proverbs 11, 4, and we'll look at, we'll look at this a little bit more in the next hour. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath. There's nothing anyone accomplishes that they'll bring before God and say, now based on this, let me into your heaven. It's all in spite of our best performances. Third point of irony. Pride never finds the thing it seeks, ironically. And here we're looking at our theme verse. A man's pride brings him low, but the humble spirit will obtain honor. What is pride seeking? Honor. Recognition. Look at me. I want this place. And the scripture says it actually brings the opposite. In God's economy. Don't be fooled by man's economy. Jesus warned that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. The thing pride is after, honor, in God's economy, it never accomplishes. Humility is what brings that about. In other words, by definition, honor isn't something you go get for yourself. It is, by definition, bestowed by other people. It can't be taken. It's like the most popular award in high school. You don't award yourself most popular. The populace votes who the most popular is. You don't take that honor for yourself. Couldn't believe my eyes last year during the NFL football season. I was watching a game. And a wide receiver for an unknown team had a coat on his back. And it said, H-O-F-2-0, question mark, question mark. Anybody see this? This is a guy who is so stuck on himself, he has named himself a future Hall of Famer sometime in 2-0, question mark, question mark. Nobody saw that? Y'all know who it was? Ocho Cinco. I'm like, oh my goodness. You know what, young man? It isn't for you to decide that you're going to be in the Hall of Fame. It's for everybody else. Honor is never taken by ourselves. You're honored because other people say so. Because God ultimately determines it. And really, God's the only one in the world who can rightly determine what honor people get because only God understands our motives. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter 5, Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you at the proper time. That's the pattern for a humble person. What is your job? What are you supposed to do? You stay under the mighty hand of God. Stay there. Don't make yourself mighty. You stay under the mighty hand of God, and what will he do? He will exalt you at the proper time. 
There is exaltation coming for humble people. And it's when God chooses to give it. And it might not be in this lifetime. Humble people are okay with that. Humble people say, my place is to stay under the mighty hand of God. That's the safest place in the world. And whenever I'm under the mighty hand of God and I look at it, I realize I'm not so mighty, but he is. And that's okay. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. He'll exalt you at the proper time. Don't take exaltation before it's time and on your own terms. That's what the humble person understands. So where, where do you find exaltation? You don't find it in self-glory. You find it in something else. Where do you find it? You find it in the truth. The truth is the foundation of true human greatness. In other words, humility is the fruit of accurate self-knowledge. Humility is the fruit of uh, accurate self-knowledge. If you use your own measuring stick to make yourself feel good about yourself, you will always come out smelling like a rose. Proverbs says, the way of a man is right in his own eyes. But that measuring stick is nothing in the eyes of God. Sometimes God gives us fun little pictures of what we're really like. When my wife took our yellow lab Amy to the vet for the first time when she was about nine months old. The vet was very smitten with this dog. This is a beautiful dog, lovely dog. There's two things that stand out about Amy. Amy is very intelligent and Amy is highly motivated by food. My wife came home and told me that. I said, honey, that's a picture of our marriage. You're very intelligent and I'm highly motivated by food. (laughs) So my dog is a metaphor of my marriage. Now, humility says, it's my fault. I'm not what God has made me to be. I have blown it. No passing the buck. No excuses. My sin keeps me from true godliness. That's what humility says. Humility says, I don't know about your heart, but it couldn't be as bad as mine. So the humble person will focus on my infirmities and your excellencies. Pride focuses on your infirmities and my excellencies. See the difference? When I'm doing pre-marriage counseling, I say to a young couple, the key that will make your marriage healthy is that you will understand that your greatest fear in this relationship, your greatest fear, and I ask them, what's your greatest fear? And they give all different kinds of things. Your greatest fear should be that you are capable of ruining the relationship. You. Most of of us intuitively think it's really my wife that's going to bomb this thing because we think more highly of ourselves than we should. But if two people get up each morning, throw their feet on the floor and say, Lord Jesus, my sin, my pride, my selfishness, my pettiness, my self-absorption is the greatest threat to this marriage. What will happen is grace will come. Grace from Jesus, grace and humility. In other words, the greatest gift you have to give your spouse is not your strength, it's your brokenness. Because in your brokenness, grace comes. And when grace comes, then comes grace. We need to completely change our fundamental paradigm in our relationships. I'm the one that will hurt it, not you. And that man will make you ravishingly handsome in your wife's eyes. Grace breaking out of brokenness, not brokenness. 
Our wives aren't too impressed with that, are they? They'll be deeply impressed with humility. Not thinking less of yourself, thinking of yourself less. Okay? Last irony. Last point of irony. The way to honor is to admit your poverty. Proverbs 11.2. When pride comes, then comes dishonor. But with the humble is wisdom. When pride comes, what's following right inside the door? Here comes pride. Right inside the door with it is dishonor. As Bruce Waltke says in his commentary in Proverbs, as an unwelcome guest. Because the proud don't want to be dishonored. The word for um, pride in that verse in Hebrew, in the Hebrew, is a word that means a boiling up. A boiling up. And it's if the proud say, don't touch me or you'll get burned. A boiling up. The word for humility is a word that conveys a pipe or a conduit. As if the humble know they are but vessels that are carrying something borrowed from God and greater than themselves. And the word for humble means to be of low eye. Proud people look down on others. Humble people have a posture of looking up because they have an honest assessment of what this sin could do to them if left unchecked. And again, they realize their sin makes them worse than anyone else. Do we really believe that? Who can really look up, as it were? Who can really value other people, see other people as more important than themselves? Who can really do that? Only a person who knows. It never comes from their own heart. Humility does not reside in the human heart, naturally. Only pride does. Jesus says, a rotten tree cannot produce good fruit. You need to try harder. You need to work harder to get humility. You need to clean up your act to get humility. You need to do a lot of religious activity to get humility. You need to be a good person to get humility. Right? Wrong. Trying harder to become a humble person is like polishing rotten fruit or pouring water on a dead tree. You need a new heart altogether. That's the miracle of God. He gives us a new heart. He promises a new heart. Deuteronomy 29.4 Yet to this day, God has not given you a heart to know or eyes to see or ears to hear. Why do human beings not know God in their heart, see Him or hear Him? God hasn't given the heart yet. And the promise of the new covenant is this. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. Isn't it interesting that this locates the problem of idolatry in the heart? God says, I will clean you. I will give you a new heart, put a new spirit within you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful of my laws. Obedience, humility, delighting in what God wants is what God himself has to give us. He gives us that new heart. And so Paul can rejoice in 2 Corinthians 5. Behold, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. How do you recognize a new heart in operation? How would you know it if you saw it? What does a new heart look like? 
Ironically, a new heart is always discovering old facts. The same old facts. God is holy. I am not. And Jesus Christ loves me, not based on my performance, but His. In other words, when you stop viewing yourself through the magnifying glass of self-appreciation and start viewing yourself through the magnifying glass of the love of Jesus Christ, humility begins to be birthed in your heart and you will say with John the Baptist, I must decrease, he must increase. An ultimate statement of humility. So, do you all sing, Jesus cast a look on me, John Barrage's hymn? Do you all sing that? Do you mean it when you sing it? Do you know what you're singing? Jesus cast a look on me. Give me sweet simplicity. So far, so good. Make me poor and keep me low. Do you mean that? Seeking only Jesus to know? When was the last time we got up in the morning and prayed, Jesus, bring everything into my life that will keep me low and humble and only ultimately seeking to know you? When was the last time we prayed that? You know why we don't pray that? Because we're not humble. The next verse, is, next verse is even more brutal. All that feeds my busy pride, cast it evermore aside. Bid my will to thine submit. Lay me humble at thy, humbly, at, humbly at thy feet. Do you really want that? I mean, I, in theory, I want that. In practice, I don't. Lay me humbly at your feet. Do we even know the things that feed our busy pride so that we can starve those things? That's a dangerous hymn to sing, isn't it? Oh, my goodness. I feel like a hypocrite when I sing it. Lay me humbly at your feet. As you grow with a new spirit and a new heart, two things are going to happen. God will increasingly show you His holiness, His beauty, His glory, the surpassing perfection of Jesus Christ. You will increasingly see that. And in contrast, you will increasingly see what? Your own lack of that in your own life. You'll see more and more the holiness of God. You'll see more and more that you aren't that way. And you'll become more and more ashamed of what you lack, but proud of what Jesus Christ has given you, as it were. That will be your boast. Your boast will be in Jesus Christ. You'll say, I am much, I should be much better than I am, but by the grace of God, I'm not what I was. And so the humble heart finds rest in Jesus. Increasing rest in Jesus Christ. And, and you'll know a humble heart at work by reproof for sin and correction. When you reprove a proud heart, it's like throwing gas on a fire. When you reprove, when you challenge, when your heart is corrected, when your sin is arrested, that is, to the humble heart, like water in a weary vessel. You'll stop complaining that you have so little and you'll wonder why you have so much. So, here's the ultimate irony. The ultimate irony is that you become rich 
by admitting your poverty. Pride can be killed, but never by its owner. The only person in the universe who can slay human pride is Jesus. And the way he does it is he brings us to the cross. And the cross is the world's ultimate display of irony. Think how the cross drips with irony. A gruesome criminal, Jesus Christ, the perfect man, is treated as a gruesome criminal. His death brings forth life. The Prince of Peace goes to war against our sins. The only truly holy man to ever live is treated as if he has committed all the sins of the world. Jesus took his power to become weak. The irony of it. He takes your sin, and what do you get in exchange? His righteousness. You can give him your pride. He will honor you in exchange as his own son and trophy. We bring Jesus how we have messed up, and he says, sit at my table with me. The irony of ironies. Therefore, the richest, most blessed, most secure, most peaceful, most joyful people in the world have nothing to boast about. It's, it's irony. The Christian gospel is dripping with irony, and that's where we need to live. What is the gospel? Your heart is more desperately wicked than you ever dreamt. You are more loved than you ever imagined possible. That's where we live, in the irony of the cross, in the irony of the gospel. Is pride awful? The humble would say so. Is humility beautiful? Jesus says so. And that is ours to be had by him day in and day out, looking to him, believing the promises of the gospel, and he begins to birth upon the rocky, uh, uh, prideful boulders of our hearts. He begins to overflow it with his beautiful humility. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for the power and wonder of your cross. It drips with irony. It is beyond comprehension that you, the perfect, the beautiful one, would become so ugly and tortured by our sin. You did this, Lord, in your supreme act of humility. You did this to set us free from the ravages of our pride and self-centeredness. We, uh, we would dare pray, seeking only thee to know, lay us humbly at your feet. We would dare pray that in faith, believing that you will not hurt us, but you will bring harm to our pride that we might glory in the humility Jesus Christ gives us. Lord, help these words become our words. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, 
for the glory of God the Father, God's people said together, Amen.